good to be here today with you. Um, this morning, we're starting a series through the book of Jude. And Jude is a short letter. It's 25, 25 verses long. Uh, it was written as an encouragement to the church and also as a warning um, to just be watchful of, of false teaching, false doctrine, the way, you know, uh, just wrong thinking can slip into the church and our hearts and minds. Um, and so all of the things that Jude writes about, these, this, this comfort uh, that we have of God's sovereignty over our salvation, uh, the, the subtle ways that these, these wrong ways of thinking can slip into our hearts and minds and twist the gospel message, we, we desperately need these words, and, and they are um, incredibly relevant and important for us to hear uh, just as much today as uh, they were a couple of thousand years ago when they were written. The main body of Jude is, is focused on this false teaching, and, and he doesn't have a lot of nice things to say about false teachers and people that distort the gospel. Um, he's warning, he's encouraging, he's exhorting the church to stand for truth, to uh, be grounded in, in the gospel and the doctrines uh, of, the, of the church. And so this morning we're going to be studying just the first two verses, and this is just the greeting, really, of the letter, but the entire context of the, uh, of the letter occurs within, uh, kind of occurs within the context of these verses. This greeting, uh, as we spend time this morning, we'll be considering our identity in Christ, and how every aspect of that identity comes with activity, it comes with action. And so that's the big idea of the sermon this morning, is identity comes with activity. I'd invite you, if you haven't already, to open your Bibles uh, to Jude, the book of Jude. It's the second last book in the Bible, pretty close to the end, and uh, read with me the first two verses. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. First, uh, just some context about who Jude is. He's not as famous as, as Peter or Paul or John. Who is this guy? Um, that who, he, you know, his letter made it into the New Testament. That's a pretty big deal. As far as we can tell, with you know, as close to being 100% certain as we can be, uh, we believe that Jude was actually Jesus' brother. Um, the brother of Jesus Christ. So J Joseph and Mary did have other kids after Jesus was born. And we believe that this Jude is the same Jude that was uh, their, their son. Um, interestingly, as he introduces himself, he doesn't wave that flag. He doesn't say, I'm Jesus' brother, so you guys better listen to me. Um, he, he writes uh, just, you know, as one of the people he's writing to, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. I just think that shows incredible humility on, on Jude's part. You know, that, that's a pretty big stick uh, to wave around that you're Jesus Christ's brother. And yet, um, he calls himself a servant, just as, as we all are here today. Um, and so, like I said a minute ago, the entirety of Jude, the entirety of this letter occurs within the context of, of this greeting. And, and Jude chooses his words very intentionally uh, in these in these few verses, why does he choose this this specific way of talking to the church? You know, a lot of 
uh, epistles, a lot of the letters in the New Testament are written to the saints in Ephesus or in, in Corinth. Well, why does he call the church kept, uh, called, beloved, and kept for Jesus Christ? Well, it's because it, Jude wants to remind the church of who they are before exhorting them on what to do. Who they are comes before what they do. And the order there is important. Our, our identity grounds us in something. Who we see ourselves as is, is absolutely crucial to the way we live, and that counts for every single person in this room, every single person uh, alive today, not just Christians. Identity is, is so, so important, and it gets talked about a lot today. Identity, who am I? How, how would you answer that question if I, if I asked you, who are you? What's the first thing that comes, comes to mind? How do you answer that question? Who are you? Maybe it's all, I'm a firefighter, or I'm an accountant, I'm a teacher. I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a brother, a sister, I'm a Canadian. I'm an athlete, a musician, a drama geek. Who are you? Well, if you're a Christian, Jude tells us exactly who we are, first and foremost, before all of these other things that kind of make up um, our identity as, as human beings. We are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. That is who we are, called beloved and kept. And so for the rest of the time, our time in the Word this morning, I'd just like to do a deep dive on what each of these three words means for us as a church, how they inform the practical side of the Christian life. And so first, we are called. It's the first word he uses to, this, uh, to address his, his readers, to those who are called. And we talk about this word fairly frequently. It's kind of Christianese for like when we choose what we want to do for uh, our jobs. Oh, like I, I felt called to pastoral ministry, so I went to Bible college, and I, I felt called here. And uh, we, we use that kind of language, I guess especially when it comes to church stuff. But when the New Testament talks about calling, it almost never is talking about occupation. I think one, once or twice Paul says he's called to be an apostle, but the rest of the time, every single time this word is used, um, it talks about salvation, the calling of salvation, the calling of God upon our hearts um, to come to him. In Romans, Paul talks about how we are called to be saints in Jesus Christ. In Revelation, it says that those who are with Jesus as he finally conquers sin once and for all, that those who are with him are called to be chosen and faithful. Calling has a lot more to do with the state of our souls before God than what we do for work. And so if you're a Christian, you are called. You have been called and you are called. In Romans 8.30, Paul writes that those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is all salvation language. This calling is an act of God upon our lives. He has initiated the relationship between us and himself. And so, so what does it look like to be called practically? Well, as we've been talking about, uh, to be called is to be given a new identity. 1 Peter 2, 9, out of darkness into his marvelous light we're called. 
And we're called into the fellowship of his son in 1 Corinthians 1 and into his kingdom and glory in 1 Thessalonians 2. To be called, in short, is to belong to Jesus. And this is a gift that is, is worth more than anything else in the world. We're called out of darkness into the family of God. Adopted as sons and daughters of the highest king and, and declared righteous in his eyes. And with that new identity as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, as called ones, with that new identity we get new purpose. We no longer live for ourselves, for our own gain and status. Again, in Romans 8, it says that we're called according to his purpose, a called according to God's purpose. And so to be called is to be given the answer to the meaning of life. You know, what is the meaning of life? It's to live according to God's purpose. And what is his purpose that he's given us? It's, it's to bring glory to him by showing and sharing the gospel with the world. In other words, when we're called, our purpose then becomes to call others to the same calling that we have received. We are called to call. And so to put it simply, church, no matter what your job is or what you spend most of your time doing in the week, you're called to be a disciple. You are called into the family of God and you are called to this missionary work of calling others to follow him. We are called to call. And the main difference really between God's calling upon our hearts and our calling that, that we do when we share the gospel with people is sometimes differentiated between as an effective calling and, and a gospel calling. God's call is effective which basically, in this case, means guarantee. When he calls someone to himself, it is so powerful. It carries with it such um, with salvific power that it brings about the kind of response that he desires in someone's heart. The response is guaranteed. And so uh, when God is sovereign over all of creation, especially over the salvation of the people that he's chosen for himself, Wayne Grudem in his, in his book Systematic Theology says that this calling is rather a kind of summons from the king of the universe. It has the capacity to draw us out of the kingdom of darkness and bring us into God's kingdom so that we can join in full fellowship with him. The gospel calling, on the other hand, is what we do when we share the gospel with people. And really the main difference is that we don't guarantee what kind of response people has when we talk about Jesus with them. They may reject it outright. They may be immediately overwhelmed with their sin and with God's glory and love uh, and their need for a savior and become Christians right on the spot. Or, you know, many people, they kind of quietly ignore it for a really long time. And they may or may not have that kind of thief on the cross moment where, where they're saved right before death. We can't guarantee how someone will respond to our gospel call. And I, I first wrote down here, and that's okay. Um, but honestly, that's a really difficult pill to swallow. We all have people in our lives that we wish we could guarantee how, how they'd respond. Well, family and friends that we, we've tried everything, it seems. We've explained the gospel to them a thousand times in every single way talked about faith in Jesus and, and how that's changed our hearts and lives. 
and and for whatever reason they um, ignore us. They blow it off, right? And that, that it's it's a difficult pill to swallow. The salvation of other people isn't our responsibility. However, that doesn't mean that uh, we aren't, we just kind of say, well, I can't do anything about this. I guess um, I'll just let God do all the work. I'm not, you know, I don't have the gift of evangelism. No, we need to call people to the gospel. We need to participate in this gospel calling. Why? Because first of all, it is um, part of our calling, as we've talked about, to call others to the gospel. It's part of who we are. It makes up our very identity as Christians. And secondly, the church participating and getting this gospel call out to the world is the primary way which God has chosen in which to use his effective guaranteed call to save souls. It's not the only way, but it is the primary way. And so when someone immediately repents of their sin and turns to Christ after we've shared the gospel with them, that's not because we're so like eloquent and convincing and good with our words. It's because God has worked through us and in that person's heart to bring them to himself. Salvation is, is completely in God's hands. But we still have a crucial an important part to play in his plan. And so all of that is to say that when Jude says to those who are called, he means us, the church, who are called by our great God in order to call others to the Savior, King Jesus. We are called. Secondly, we are loved to those who are called and beloved in God the Father. This is another word we talk about all the time, love. We see it in movies, in books, all over the place. Love is everywhere. And who doesn't love love? Every good story, after all, has a love interest. The guy meets the girl, he saves her from the dragon. They fall in love. Girl meets guy, they team up to fight the impossible to beat, impossible to beat bad guy. Kiss at the end. We love love. But when Jude writes to those who are beloved in God the Father, the kind of love that we see in movies and hear about in stories and, and even experience in our own lives with our family and friends, all of that absolutely pales in comparison to the love that, that God has for us. You know, we, we love to talk about how God is love, how, how Jesus loves me. But I know for myself, I don't often let that sink in uh, as deeply as it should. You know, even the way I've been saying, we love love. We, we love to talk about, like, that, that just kind of cheapens this, uh, this word, the, the incredible power of this word. God's love is so much bigger, so much wider, so much deeper than any of us will ever be able to truly comprehend. Think about this for a minute. God is infinite. Every aspect of him is infinite. And that means all of who he is never ends. He is infinitely powerful. He is infinitely just. He is infinitely wise. And he is infinitely loving. His love for you and for me is bigger than our solar system or our galaxy or our universe. The universe is, is a microscopic atom compared to his love for us. And that's an under-exaggeration. 
It never, never ends. And God is love. His love for you and for me is infinitely beyond what we will ever be able to comprehend here in this life or the life after. And notice the preposition that Jude uses here, not loved by God, but beloved in God the Father. We are completely surrounded and drowning in his love, and there is no way that we can see the edges of his love for us. Paul writes, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, you are beloved in God the Father. I, can, I cannot express in words, no one can express with words how much you are loved. He loves you. He loves you no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter your past, no matter what. He loves you. And that love isn't just to make us feel good about ourselves. He loves us, and it's because of his love that we can love others. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. In church, it's, it's by this divinely empowered love that we should be known to the world. This love is our reputation. In John 13, Jesus says that by this, all people, all people, shall know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's, there are two sides to this coin. On, on one hand, we can talk about how, generally speaking, the church has done a fairly miserable job at being known by our love. We have a tendency to fight with one another, to die on the wrong hills. And people notice this. The world is watching. On the other hand, the way we love one another needs to be correctly defined. Biblical love is not just letting people do whatever they want to. It's not just being nice. It's not just being open-minded to what others want us to think. This, this kind of pushover love is really missing the point of what biblical love looks like. We have to let Scripture define what and how we love one another. If God is love, then our love should look like him, right? And so uh, that doesn't mean necessarily just being a nice person. We always have to be speaking the truth in love, and sometimes the truth is hard to say and it's hard to hear. But we must love truth. And speaking the truth in love applies exactly to that gospel call that we were just talking about. Our, our, the gospel is, is wonderful, beautiful truth, but it's also offensive. And the gospel that you and I, uh, the gospel is that you and I are sinners on our way to hell. But while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us because he loves us and because of his death, we're declared righteous in the sight of God and can be with him forever. That is the gospel. But nobody likes talking about how they've sinned. Nobody likes talking about hell. I don't. 
but it is the truth, and we need to be able to speak this truth in love. Let the gospel offend where it needs to, but uh, far be it from us that we're ever just being offensive and aggressive in how we, how we call people to the gospel. And that's the reason why the gospel is good news. It's good news that uh, for those who would turn and trust in Christ alone for salvation, they would have peace with God. They would be called, they would be loved in a way that is beyond our understanding and beyond what we deserve, yet freely given. Church, you and I are those who are called and beloved in God the Father. May we be people by God's grace who are worthy of these words. Because we are so deeply entrenched in the love of God the Father. And so may we be people that love others the way that God has loved us. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We are loved. And finally, Jude tells us that we are kept. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Out of the three words that Jude uses to describe the church, I think that kept is probably the least liked, uh, least talked about. What does it mean to be kept? Am I, you know, am I kept like you keep a cat inside the house making sure it doesn't run away? Am I kept like salt and preservatives keep your food from going bad? Or like how you keep a, a Gretzky rookie card in a box in your closet? What does it mean to be kept? Remember the rest of the letter of Jude occurs within the context of these words, within the context of this greeting. And so uh, in, in the HGC class that we're going through on Sunday nights, we've talked about how the three most important aspects of Bible interpretation are context, context, and context. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so the rest of Jude is dedicated, really, most of it, at least, is just dedicated to discussing false teachers who try to lead believers astray and a call to persevere in the faith. So when Jude calls the church those who are kept, he's saying that their souls, their faith, they are kept safe and preserved by God's power from falling away, especially in the face of false teaching and, and doctrine and, and all these things that uh, try to steal us away from the Lord. At the end of Jude, in his conclusion, he kind of bookends this, and he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... To be kept for Jesus Christ means that your faith is secure. It's guaranteed by God. God is sovereign both over the initial moment of salvation and also ensuring that it remains safe for the rest of our lives. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is John 10, 29, where he, uh, Jesus says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them from my Father's hand. In the verse we read earlier from Romans, death and life can't keep us from God. If you're a Christian, your faith is secure in the almighty hands of the God who loves you. You are kept. This is such an important truth to take to heart. Um, as a kid, and I'm, I'm sure many of you can relate to this, 
I was, I was terrified of, of losing my faith for some reason, for, you know, either not loving God enough, whatever that was, or, you know, I didn't read my NIV adventure Bible for a week or something. And so I remember, like, as a seven or eight-year-old boy lying in bed at night, uh, just absolutely, like, like, literally paralyzed by fear um, that I would lose my faith somehow and not know it. And so I asked Jesus to save me like 25 or 30 times or something. It was, it was like all the time I would pray this prayer, driven by fear of, of, of not having any assurance of salvation, of my forgiveness. What was wrong there? Even, even though I was already saved, I had no clue that I was kept for Jesus Christ. I had never realized the importance of a verse like John 10, 29 or like Jude 1. And so I lived in this constant fear of somehow mysteriously losing my salvation and waking up in the morning to find everyone in my family had been uh, raptured except for me. If this resonates with you at all, even a little bit, please know and trust that you are called, beloved, and kept Your soul is kept safe and firm and secure in the hands of God. And that nobody, not your neighbor, not not the government, not the devil, and not even you can snatch your salvation from the Father. This is amazing news. This means that our salvation doesn't depend on how good we are at being Christians. Let's be honest. All of us are, are pretty terrible at it. We mess it up a lot. But our salvation is not dependent on how good we are. We don't go to heaven because we're good people. God doesn't call us because we're good. He doesn't love us because we're good. He calls us and loves us and keeps us because he is good. Our salvation rests securely on the unchanging, steadfast love of God who has called us and loves us. And so the text doesn't just say that we're kept, but we're kept for Jesus Christ. And so what does this mean? What, what's this for Jesus Christ part? I think this, this means two things, both um, that we're kept until he comes again. Kind of like when you get a text at the end of a work day saying that your favorite meal is waiting for you when you get home. Don't go too far with that analogy. But also that we are kept for his purpose, for his mission. And so like we've been studying this morning, identity comes with activity. We don't just bear these labels without any practical purpose. It'd be like having a marriage certificate, but never speaking or interacting with your spouse at all. You know, sure, you're legally married, but is there really a marriage there? No. And so we are called in order to call others. We love because he first loved us and we are kept for Jesus Christ in order to fulfill his purposes in our lives as disciples. We are sanctified into looking more like Jesus. And as a family, we grow into a tighter knit and more loving family that has been united by Jesus' death and adopted as children by his father. And as missionaries, we're sent out into the world to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, this is who we are as the church. We are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. 
Let's not waste these, this identity, treating them like a marriage certificate left in a drawer in an abandoned home. Identity comes with activity. And so let's actively pursue living up to being called, to being loved and being kept so that the world might know the unfathomable glory and power and sovereignty and love and justice of this great God in whom our identity is found. Finally, let's conclude with with verse two. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, peace, and love are the overflow of being called beloved and kept. They are the common experience of all Christians. We have been shown incredible mercy. We receive incomprehensible peace with God and we are overwhelmed in his love. And and to that we say to him be glory and power and dominion forever and ever. If you don't feel like these things are present in your life, if you don't feel at peace, if you don't feel uh, the mercy and love of God being multiplied in your life, please do not be afraid uh, to ask about what these things mean. About how they feel, about, about how to get there. I would love, and I think I speak on behalf of everyone in this room when I would say that we would love to talk more about you with Jesus, about Jesus um, because he's the whole reason that we're doing all of this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Would you please pray with me? Father God, in these uh, two short verses, we learn so much about who you are and about who we are, about how you've called us to live, about how deeply you love us, Lord, about how our faith, our salvation rests securely in your hands. God, I pray that by reflecting on these truths of who we are, of who you are, that mercy and peace and love would be multiplied in the lives of every person in this room. All for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.